The following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. Congratulations to the chaste saints. Their souls never condemn them. Having won them, they are never separated from themselves. Congratulations to the spirits of the chaste saints. They have received the perfect heavenly crown from the heavenly sphere assigned to them. Congratulations to the bodies of the chaste saints. They have been deemed worthy to become temples of God so that Christ may dwell in them. What is chastity? For many people, we associate chastity with celibacy, which is the total avoidance of sex. For many centuries, religious organizations have taught us that sex is shameful, that sex should be avoided except in the cases of marriage, or to procreate children. For many centuries, this teaching has been propagated that sex is something shameful or dangerous, precisely because of its tremendous power and the sacred nature of the sexual act. It is in sex that we have the power to create life. And God, divinity, also has that power to create life and has given us the ability to do that through the union of a man and a woman in sex. We see in sex the principle of creation, that there are always three factors involved whenever life is created. There is a masculine principle that is projective. There is a feminine principle that is receptive. And uniting them, there is the holy conciliation, sex through the Holy Spirit, if you are familiar with the Christian teachings. Today's lecture will be an introduction to the Gnostic mysteries of chastity. and We will be studying a Gnostic text, a scripture from almost 2,000 years ago, called Acts of Thomas in India. This scripture 
is generally considered to be a teaching of celibacy by many mainstream scholars. And that is because at that time, the true teaching of chastity, how to harness our sexual energy and how to work in the sexual act in accordance with God's highest commandments, was not taught publicly. For many centuries, sex has been relegated to the private sphere, and what happened in people's private sexual lives was not talked about openly. Perhaps it is for this reason that many people have associated sex with shame and fear. But the reality is that sex has a dual potential. It has a potential to bring us into greater suffering, to create pain. For who could deny that sexual abuse, sexual crimes that are committed, are among the most horrible and abominable acts that we see today? But sex also has a beautiful potential, a spiritual potential. Chastity is the teaching about how we can use sex and our sexual force in accordance with God's commandments. Those familiar with Christianity know that two commandments directly concern sex. One of them is that thou shall not commit adultery. We should not have sex with multiple people. That is a commandment from God. The other commandment is thou shall not fornicate. Fornication is the misuse of sex, whether outside of marriage or also within a marriage, if sex is used with impurity with lust, with desire for selfish pleasures and in, forget, in forgetfulness of divinity, which is always present with us, especially in the sexual act when we have that power of creation illuminated. So there are two doors related to sex. When we go through the act of sex in one direction, which is what we know about today in our public media, in our television shows, our music. We experience all of the sex sexual sensations with a tremendous desire. We go around seeking more and more of those sensations. We watch videos, we read articles, we find partners and go to places intending to find sexual partners. And that is the modern idea of sex. Sex is something to be enjoyed. Ever since the sexual liberation movement around the 1960s or 70s, we have had so much public content shared about sex. There has, there has been medical research, uh, lots of um, movies and television shows, in which in the very first few moments, you see very graphic content that several decades ago or even just a few years ago would not have been permissible. Sex is unavoidable in our modern culture. And that is why in this teaching of chastity, we have finally been granted access to how to use sex in accordance with God's law knowledge that was never given publicly before the 1950s, knowledge that was preserved for centuries and millennia by true initiates of mystery schools, of genuine temples of religion. Only those who were properly prepared, who had purity of mind and heart, 
who had willpower and self-control were able to understand and learn the true secret of chastity, how to perform the sexual act with purity. And that is why when we study ancient gospels like Acts of Thomas, we see that sex can be veiled, can be a hidden mystery, something that must be discovered. And anyone who remembers being a child before they had exposure or had much understanding about sex, it was a great mystery. Something that, when encountered for the first time, produced a tremendous reaction and a tremendous effect in all of us. Anyone who has experienced some form of sexual trauma can tell you that sex is much more than a mere physical act, that sex is psychological and has tremendous power to shape our life. Each of us, if we are sincere and examine our psychological relationship with sex, can see that this is an important aspect of life and sex is a natural part of life. But if that act produces pain or produces joy, is truly dependent on the psychological state that we bring to that act. And that is why we seek to understand through scriptures the mysteries of how to become pure, how to be chaste and to gain all of those rewards that are spoken of in regards to the chaste saints that I read earlier from this scripture, Acts of Thomas. In order to properly approach this teaching today, we have to set aside the concepts, the ideas, even the experiences or preferences that we may have regarding sex to encounter this teaching with an open mind. For it is a mystery to most of us, a very new teaching to many of us that has not been heard about before. For those who've never heard of chastity before, it may be surprising it may be offensive to your ideas about what sex is. And since we have been exposed to a large amount of propaganda in our culture regarding sex, it is difficult to really approach it with humility and open-mindedness when we already have strongly held positions and opinions about our sexuality. So I encourage you to take the mindset of a child and if you are able to return to that state of innocence before you had much knowledge of sex, what it really signified, and to have an open mind as you hear this teaching today. For Jesus taught us in the Gospel of Matthew that we must be changed and become as children. Through chastity, we are able to become again like children, like virgins, new to sex. And that is why Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If we really want to enter into heaven, to know the mysteries of divinity, to experience the bliss of Eden 
from which we have been cast out by our abuse of sexuality. We must have that innocence, that purity, that humility and reverence of a child when we approach the topic of sex. We also need the two esoteric sciences of Gnostic Christianity that allow us to interpret scripture according to the principles of the initiates. People who were initiated into the mystery schools or the highest levels of the temples of genuine religion were taught Kabbalah and alchemy. The first, Kabbalah, is related with the tree of life in the Garden of Eden because Kabbalah can unveil to us the mysteries of the universe, of nature, of ourselves. Kabbalah is like a map of divinity. And for those who have not studied it before, I strongly encourage you to study the course on glorian.org, which the other instructor will write into the chat for you. This course on Kabbalah relates to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and has a corresponding course related to the 22 arcana of Tarot. These 22 letters and 22 arcana of Tarot are one and the same in that each one encodes a spiritual principle, a mystery about our universe, our existence, our spiritual journey, and how we can return back to divinity. That code is very deep and requires much more study than I could provide you with today, but we will apply it in a basic way through Kabbalistic numerology to give you an introduction to how we must apply this science to spiritual scriptures. Similarly, alchemy is essential for understanding scripture, and we would be remiss not to apply alchemy to this particular scripture, Acts of Thomas, for it is an extremely sexual and alchemical text. Alchemy comes from two roots. The first is Al, El, God. El is God in Hebrew, and Al, or Allah, relates to the Arabic name of God. Chemia is the other root of alchemy, and this means to fuse or to cast a metal. And those of us who are familiar with the tradition of alchemy from medieval times will no, we'll understand why they encoded alchemy through symbols of converting lead into gold. That one must take a very base and heavy and dense and dark material and transform it through a scientific procedure into gold, the most pure and rarefied and noble of the metals. That science encodes how we can use sex as a procedure through which we can convert the base lead of our personality, of our corrupted psychology, into the pure gold of the spirit and give birth to Christ within our own physical body. Very important to understand that alchemy was written in code and that the masters who wrote about it, just like the great masters of all religions, kept the sexual teaching hidden so it would not be abused by people who approached it with ambition, with pride, with lust, 
with little spiritual understanding. Only now, because our society has become so open, because we have entered the era of Aquarius, where sexual liberation is abundant, are we able to speak publicly about mysteries which were never revealed to the profane. Through alchemy, sexual alchemy, we are able to fuse ourselves with divinity. Alchemy is the science to fuse the human soul with Christ, God, divinity. Christ is a principle, a force, an energy, an intelligence that is permeating every atom of life in our universe. Christ is far beyond one terrestrial person, but Christ has the ability to manifest physically in our world through a properly prepared individual. And that is why Jesus Christ, the greatest master this planet has ever known, is given that title of Christ because he was incarnating Christ into the physical world so that force of infinite love and compassion and wisdom could teach humanity how to live in accordance with the laws that divinity has set into our nature. Laws like chastity, which forbid fornication and forbid adultery, so that sex can only be used in purity, in accordance with divinity in mindfulness of the divine nature of that sacrament. So in order to understand the basics of these two sciences, Kabbalah relating to the tree of life and alchemy relating to the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, we will study the location of the scripture. Acts of Thomas in India is about an apostle, Judas Thomas, who is sent on a mission to India. And while scholars generally accept that this was a truly a real man who traveled to the actual location of India around the Indus River in that region at that time, establishing Christian churches, we must also know that this text is symbolic. It encodes a greater truth, a spiritual truth, a secret, a mystery hidden in its symbols. The first symbol is India, because India is far more than just a literal place in this scripture. India indicates the setting or the environment in which this apostle is going to bring his teaching, the teaching of Christ, the teaching of chastity. And this is why we need to analyze India in accordance with Kabbalah. This divine science that can help us to understand the nature of God and also the path to return to divinity. In the Hebrew, the word for India is Hodu. Hodu is written with three Hebrew letters. The first is He, the second is Dalet, the third is Vav. Just observing the shape of the symbols of these letters, we can see already a hint of their spiritual significance. In the letter He, we see the shape of a womb, a uterus. That is because He represents femininity, the divine feminine, and also 
the physical feminine body and sexual organs. At the end of this word, we see vav. Vav is a phallic symbol resembling an erect penis. And for that reason, we can understand that on either side of this word, we have the man and the woman present. Uniting these, this man and woman is dalet, which has the shape of a door, and dalet means door in Hebrew. Sex can be referred to as the door to Eden, and it is also the door out of Eden. Through the abuse of sex, we lose the ability to remain in union with Christ, with God. We lose our bliss. For Eden in Hebrew means bliss. That is why, initially in this Gospel Acts of Thomas, the Apostle is a bit reluctant to travel to the place where he is assigned, because India is not literally a place that he is reluctant to go, but symbolically it signifies sex. And that door, which is so treacherous in that it can lead us back to God, but it can also expel us away from God and separate us from God if sex is abused. That is why we see here this quote from Samal and Vihor in his book, Tarot and Kabbalah, that within sex is a major force that can liberate the human being, but also a major force that can enslave the human being. For those familiar with tarot, you can see the symbol of the 15th arcanum, passion, commonly referred to as the devil. The 15th arcanum relates to the Hebrew letter samek, the serpent, biting its tail. And that cycle of passion is what can enslave us and convert us into devils. If we see an attractive person walking by, we may be compelled to act a certain way around them, to talk a certain way around them. We may obsess about that person. Or conversely, we may try to repress that force and avoid that person, avoid thinking about them. But either way, we know that that sexual potency is a major force that has an impact on us psychologically. Regardless of if we try to indulge it or repress it, it shapes us, and very few are those human beings who can truly master and command their sexual force. Sex is also the key to liberating us, and that is what Thomas will teach us in this Gospel. The reason that we can relate Arcanum 15 with India, esoterically speaking, is because the Kabbalistic addition of the three letters in the word India. He, being the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, corresponds with the number five. Dalet, being the fourth, corresponds with four. And Vav corresponds with six as the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. In Kabbalah, we know that there is a esoteric significance to the sum total of any number given in a scripture. When we add five, plus four, plus six, we receive the Kabbalistic sum of 15, the devil. Judas Thomas in Acts of Thomas has the challenging task of going 
to the realm of the devil in order to convert the people there who are confused about sex and sexuality through many interesting parables about sex. Back to chastity, so they can become chaste saints, disciples of Christ. Through the study of alchemy, we can also examine the symbol of India, which relates to the Indus River, a river which gave tremendous life to that region and continues to give tremendous life to that region. The Indus River in Sanskrit is referred to as Sindhu. Sindhu means a large body of water, a river, an ocean. For those who have studied the course on Kabbalah and alchemy, they will know immediately that water, especially bodies of water like rivers and oceans, correspond with the sexual force, especially the sexual force in relationship to the Divine Mother, for it is the waters of the womb which create life. Sexual waters of the woman bring life, and also the sexual waters of the man, semen, also give life. And that is the alchemical significance of water when we see it mentioned in the scriptures, the waters of life. However, it's important to note that water also can bring destruction, and that is why through the floods of Noah, humanity was destroyed for their crimes, for their vices. So this is a dual symbol. Sex can bring life, and it can destroy life, depending on how it is used. This teaching is seen very clearly in the Quran. The word Sindhu is derived from Sintu, which means date palm tree. And date palms, which were abundant in the Middle East region, are sometimes considered to be the true tree in the Garden of Eden. Not an apple tree, but a date palm from which Adam and Eve ate. And that is a very sexual symbol. That is why that is the tree related with alchemy, the science of fusing oneself with God through sacred sexuality. In one surah, surah 16 of the Quran, we see that the date palm is mentioned along with grapevines. Grapes are another sexual symbol, which is why Jesus, the master, performed his first miracle at a wedding. And that miracle was to convert water into wine. We see the relationship here that water is our potential. And if that water is transformed, it can become the spiritual wine of the soul at a wedding where two are married. That's the same symbol as converting the lead, the impure sexuality, slowly through a process of gentle heat, through a scientific method, into the gold of the purified spirit and soul. So in Surah 16, verse 67, the Quran states, And from the fruits of date palm trees and grapevines, you derive intoxicants as well as wholesome provision. Surely in this is a sign for those who understand. 
Who are the people with spiritual understanding? They are the initiates, the ones with spiritual ears and eyes who can hear and see the mysteries that are hidden behind the scripture. And this mystery, so beautifully presented to us in the Holy Quran, is that from sex, we can see intoxication, obsession, addiction, lust, desire that has no satiation. And we can also see wholesome provision, the ability to bring life, not only physical life of a child, but also spiritual life to regenerate ourselves. The date palm, interestingly, that date resembles a testes, a male sexual organ. The date is considered a sacred food in Islam. And that is why we can see that that is sacred, just as our sexual seed is sacred. The sexual water must be conserved, must be transformed and transmuted through the science of alchemy. And that is precisely the science that Samael Anvior, the founder of the modern Gnostic tradition, unveiled in the 1950s in his book, The Perfect Matrimony. As today's lecture is only an introduction into the Gnostic mystery of chastity, I strongly encourage you to read this book, which can be read for free online on glorian.org or purchased from many booksellers. In this book, Samael Anvior extensively teaches us the science of sexual alchemy, chastity, and also pranayama or transmutation for single persons who are not yet married and need the science by which they can still harness that sexual force for themselves. For single people, it's important to note that they can conserve their sexual energy and must transmute it every day through practices like pranayama which you can read about in the book, The Perfect Matrimony. If one conserves their sexual energy, but represses it, does not transform that energy, one could become a very troubled person. We've seen that the celibacy, the total avoidance of sex, is harmful, produces psychological imbalances, and in some cases has even led to sexual crimes. We do not advocate celibacy in this teaching, but chastity does require that an unmarried person abstain from sex. Until we are married, we should be transmuting the energy daily, working with prayer, with mantra, with pranayama, so that that force is continually flowing in our body and allowing us to unite with divinity. If we lose that force through the vices such as masturbation, we lose our connection to divinity. And that is why many feel shame after orgasm, for they know that they have lost something valuable. Yes, on a physical level, we can lose thousands of sperm. Uh, but for men and women, orgasm is harmful, more importantly, on an energetic and spiritual level, because the orgasm produces a short circuit in the physical body and in the energetic body that destroys those bodies. The orgasm not only affects us energetically and physically, but also spiritually, in that when we expel that sacred substance from our bodies, 
we are losing the very force of God, the creator within us. And that is why we become blind and deaf and lame, spiritually speaking. That is why when most of us sit to meditate or pray, we see black, we hear nothing. Because we are dead inside, spiritually speaking. Because we have lost the very force of life and creation within our own body. Samuel Vior states that the sexual act is the real consubstantiation of love in the tremendous psychophysical reality of our nature. Consubstantiation in Christian terms relates to the reality, <clears throat> sorry, relates to the teaching that the bread and wine of the Holy Eucharist, the Holy Communion, is simultaneously one with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Khan represents together, substantiation, substance. They are one substance together simultaneously. That is the teaching in mainstream Christianity. But Samuel and Vior taught from an esoteric standpoint and is pointing out that on a psycho and physical reality, sex unites us with divinity. Psychologically and physically, we must be pure. We must maintain that sexual energy within our body and transform it in, in accordance with God's guidance, the teachings of chastity. That is the real consubstantiation in which we are simultaneously a human and divine. In the sexual act, when man and woman unite, something is created. He says here, something is created when a man and woman unite sexually. What is created? Of course, we know that a physical child can be created when a man and woman unite sexually. And there is a mystery through which only one sperm and one egg are needed to create a pure physical child. That is a mystery for another lecture, the mystery of immaculate conception. But you can read about it in the Yellow Book by Samal and Vior if you are interested in learning more about it. What else is created when we unite sexually? Well, if we reflect on our lives, what have we seen created through sex? We may see some happy marriages, although these are becoming fewer. We've seen much pain created by sex, suffering. And that is because mankind has not been taught how to use sex appropriately. Mankind has been taught how to abuse sex, how to indulge in sex, how to go around seeking the next sensations or have multiple partners or masturbate, all kinds of sexual vices which corrupt our psychology. These vices don't just harm our physical body. They harm us psychologically. They create imbalances. They create addictions. They create lunacy. Some of the worst crimes, sexual crimes, are committed by lunatics who had zero control over their sexual force. Sexuality must be properly understood so that we can use it in balance with divinity. This is a great mystery that can only be known through experience. Anyone who has experienced the suffering, the heartbreak, the loss and sorrow of lust can understand that there is one doorway 
we can pass through with sex that brings an emptiness, a longing that is never fulfilled. And many people believe in the promise of love, of sex as love, but do not know how to bring real love into the sexual act. Love must be brought not only for our spouse and our partner with selflessness, sacrificing our own selfish desires for that act, but out of love, union with our partner. Love must also involve divinity. Where divinity is not present, there is not love. Christ, God, divinity is love. If you are performing the sexual act or sexual behaviors without divinity, there is not love present there. We need to understand that the very potential for our own heart to love our spouse, to love humanity, to love our children, that potential in our own heart is the spark of divinity. And the one who loses their sexual forces, their sexual energies, and their sexual substance loses that ability to love. That is why lust, for the, for the joy and the pleasure it can bring in the short, short term, never materializes with that eternal happiness that it seems to promise. People spend their whole lives believing that chasing sex will somehow bring them that happiness, will bring them to love. But it is not sex alone which brings us to love. We must bring love to sex through our inner union with divinity. And that is why chastity does not begin just in the sexual union with a partner. No, alchemy begins with us, with our willingness to purify our minds and hearts, to become as children, to go sincerely and humbly before God, and to learn these mysteries from our inner divinity. Divinity will teach you much about chastity and sexual alchemy if you are open in your heart and your mind, if you are pure, if you set aside your pride, which thinks it already understands sexuality, it already knows what sex is about, and you allow God to teach you God's divine mystery of sex, you will see that on the other side of that door, there is a tremendous abundance of sacred mystery that we have barely begun to understand through our modern contemporary notions about sex. So how does one practice sexual alchemy with their partner? For those of us who are married, what is the practice of chastity. How do we engage in this sexual act, but do it with purity and do it with full awareness, meditative awareness of the presence of divinity? Samal and Vihor gives the full teaching about that in The Perfect Matrimony. But just to read a little bit for you today from that book, he states, in relationship to a man and woman sexually united and experiencing all the bliss of that union, he states the following, if a man and woman would know how to withdraw without the spasm, the orgasm, if in those moments of delightful enjoyment, they would have the willpower 
to control the animal ego. And if at that point they would retire from the sexual act without ejaculating the semen, neither inside the womb, nor outside of it, or to the side of it, nor in any other place, they would have then performed an act of sexual magic. This is what is called in occultism the Arcanum AZF. With the Arcanum AZF, we can retain all that marvelous light, all those cosmic currents, all those divine powers. Then Kundalini, the Divine Mother, the sacred fire of the Holy Ghost, awakens in us, and we become terribly divine gods. However, when we ejaculate the semen, the cosmic currents merge with the universal currents and then penetrate the souls of the two beings with a bloody light, the luciferic forces of evil, fatal magnetism. Then Cupid leaves crying. The gates of Eden are locked. Love becomes disillusionment. Disenchantment arrives, and the black reality of this valley of tears is all that remains. God has created a door for us, a door in nature, in physical nature, through which we can enter into Eden, into bliss, or through which we can leave it. Meditate on your experiences with sex. Become prayerful and sincere and see if sex has really brought you lasting happiness or if you have been abusing that act forgetting divinity, forgetting love. And if that, and that is the case, then you will understand what he states when he says that Cupid leaves crying. Cupid relating to the god Eros, the god of love, one in the same mystery as Christ in the Greek mysteries. Eros leaves us when we orgasm, men and women, although women may not lose any physical substance through the orgasm, they are losing tremendous substance energetically and spiritually, and that can be seen through clairvoyance. Orgasm separates us from God. It locks us out of heaven. We must become pure like children, like chaste virgins, as we enter into the sexual act, every time remaining pure bringing divinity, love for our spouse and love for divinity. If we break this law of nature and we fornicate through orgasm, orgasm and fornication are one and the same, regardless of if we're in a marriage or not, we will, in the long run, experience tremendous suffering because we are losing our connection to divinity. Divinity is what really brings us happiness. Through sex, we strengthen our union with divinity if it is performed with purity and prayer and love. But before we can perform sacred sexuality, sexual alchemy with a partner, we have to establish that covenant with our own inner divinity by establishing purity within ourselves. We begin this practice as animals, filled with animal lust and desire. But through willpower, through constant application, we are refining this act and refining our own psychology, meditating on the, the evils that exist within our own mind and heart. 
the selfishness, the pride, the greed, the lust, the desires that are never happy, that are never satisfied. How do we free ourselves from that? How do we liberate ourselves from that? It's through sex, working with Kundalini, which is the mystery of the Divine Mother, the Divine Mother who controls those sexual waters and allows us to become free, to become washed and purified by those waters if we keep those waters within our body. When we lose that spiritual water, we become inhabited. We open that doorway for evil forces to come into our body. Sex is the original sin because sex with fornication opened the gates of Eden and expelled us out of union with divinity. Sex is called the original sin, but sex with purity is the salvation and redemption of mankind. And Acts of Thomas is about many, many individuals who are suffering from the misuse of sex. Today, we're only really going to talk a little bit about Act 1, the wedding feast of the king's daughter. But if you read this scripture, you will see again and again that people are committing sexual crimes, that people are being tormented by sexual demons, that sex is prevalent throughout this act. And that is why Kabbalistically, not literally, but Kabbalistically and esoterically, India symbolizes sex, the perilous nation in which the people are afflicted by sexual impurities, just like each one of us. Whether we have had sex or not, each of us should examine our relationship to sex and our sexual behaviors, our psychological relationship to sex, and ask ourselves if it's pure. Many who fear sex just want to avoid it, never want to think about it, want to repress it, want to be celibate. But that is a false door because the celibate person never goes anywhere. They never grow. The chaste person, even if they are single, is growing through their own sexual force or through the union of masculine and feminine forces in the sexual act. But the celibate person, the person who refuses to transform that energy, who tries to ignore it and run away from it, is lying to themselves. Sex is an essential part of nature and human experience. And sex is an essential aspect of our spiritual journey because without sex, we have no power to get out of the current state that we are in. and We have no power to reunite with divinity. So we need to preserve those sexual energies which are continually coming into our body from above, from our divine father and our divine mother. We need to preserve those energies, transform them, and use them to build the temple of God in our own bodies. That is why Thomas goes to India to build a palace for a king. The true king is God. The palace is the temple. The temple of our body can become a palace or a temple of God. But only if we meet God's requirements. Just as divinity demands that purity of heart and spirit in the sexual act, that is what we have to understand. If we don't meet the prerequisite, this is a law of nature. The law states 
that sex expels you from Eden or it brings you back into Eden. Sex abused separates you from God. Sex performed with chastity and purity reunites you with God. That's a law of nature. That is not an idea that someone just made up. That is a law written into nature and we can experience it. We can work with it and verify that directly through our experience. Judas Thomas unwillingly gets sold by Jesus, his master, as a slave so that he is forced to go to India, sold as a slave who will build a palace for a king in India. But before he's able to build this palace, he is compelled to attend a wedding feast for the local king's daughter. Why does he have to attend a wedding feast before he can build the palace? Spiritually speaking, this is symbolic. The wedding feast, the consummation of marriage, the sexual act, is the prerequisite through which the temple of God can be built. Truly to create a vessel into which Christ, that profound and tremendous power of wisdom and love, can actually incarnate a human body, those vessels are created through sex. That is the only way that anything in nature is created. And that is why Thomas and Jesus, as his twin, teach the mystery of chastity in the bridal chamber. When they are teaching this, Jesus appears to the young couple in the form of Judas Thomas, and they are surprised because Judas Thomas has just left the room after blessing them and praying for them. And they ask, how is it possible that you are still here in the room? And Jesus explains to them that he is not the physical man Judas Thomas, that he is Christ. This, again, is symbolic. Thoma means twin. Thomas is twin. The twin of Christ. The physical apostle is the vessel in which Christ manifests and gives that gospel to humanity. Jesus was a literal person, but symbolically, looking at this symbol, we see that Jesus is representing Christ, the force of Christ, because this gospel takes place after Jesus had died and resurrected, and his spirit comes through the vessel of Thomas, his physical apostle, to teach the mystery of chastity. So what does Jesus teach in the bridal chamber? Acts of Thomas says that Jesus taught the following to the young couple. Remember, my children, what my brother Thomas spoke unto you and what he delivered before you. And know this, that if ye abstain from this foul intercourse, ye become holy temples, pure, being quit of impulses and pains, seen and unseen and ye will acquire no cares of life or of children whose end is destruction. But if ye be persuaded and keep your souls chaste before God, there will come unto you living children, whom these blemishes touch not, and ye shall be without care, leading a tranquil life without grief or anxiety, looking to receive that incorruptible and true marriage and ye shall be therein groomsmen entering into that bride chamber, 
which is full of immortality and light. Modern scholars who know nothing of the spiritual mysteries, who have never been initiated into the deepest, genuine mysteries of spiritual teachings, always interpret this scripture as advocating for celibacy, total abstinence from sex. In reality, this scripture very obviously indicates that sex is important. And Jesus spends the whole night there in that bridal chamber with the, temp with the couple. What happens in that bridal chamber is not explicitly stated in this gospel, for at that time it was forbidden to give this knowledge publicly to the profane, to people who were not properly prepared, who could not handle working with sex in this way. But we see that Jesus is talking about two marriages here. One marriage, the marriage of foul intercourse, the lustful marriage, which brings impulses and pain, seen and unseen. So physical pain, yes, it can bring physical illnesses to us, kar karmically speaking, in the long term, but also unseen impulses and pain, those addictions, those psychological imbalances, the, the madness that comes when sex becomes out of control and, and abused. And another marriage that he mentions is the incorruptible and true marriage, the bride chamber which is full of immortality and light. When we practice chastity and we are meditating and we are awakening our spiritual senses, our spiritual eyes, we can see the light penetrating around and through our physical bodies. We can see that divinity is present Angels are present, observing and guiding that sacred sexual act. It is a holy sacrament. And for those who work with it, they can verify this in their experience. But the prerequisite is purity. You will never reach the heights of this chastity, of this teaching, if you are orgasming. If you are losing that sacred energy, even just now and then, you will never be able to build the temple of God because it is a law of nature that that is required. That is the substance through which the Divine Mother can build a vessel for God within us. Only a fool would spend so much time and effort and discipline to build a beautiful temple and then go in with a sledgehammer and start breaking down the walls and destroying it and then decide okay, I'm going to go back and rebuild it again. We will never get anywhere if we are going back and forth. We must obey the law. We must work with sex. Absolutely, it is essential. But we must work with sex in accordance with God's commandments, which forbid fornication. They forbid orgasm. And they forbid adultery. The person who tries to practice this with many partners will also get nowhere. Love must be present, genuine love that grows and grows and grows as we continue to practice with our spouse. Love for our spouse and love for divinity. Love is the substance of divinity. And divinity leaves the adulterer. Now, although the sexual act is not explicitly discussed or written down in the scripture, it is clear to us 
that a marriage has taken place, that Jesus spent that evening with the young couple teaching them and guiding them in the sexual act. And we know that something tremendous has happened because the next day the bride and groom are transformed, radically transformed. In fact, when the king and queen come down to see their daughter and her new husband, they are very shocked. They are surprised that she has removed her veil, which is called the garment of shame in those times, which the woman will wear to hide her shame after, committing, after having sex. They come down and they ask her and her husband, why do you look so happy? Why are you not ashamed? Is it because you, you are in such great love with each other that you're not ashamed? They, they're shocked. They've never seen a couple come out of the sexual act with happiness and joy that pervades them in this way, this level of transformation. So the, the bride, the daughter, responds to her parents and she says this, Verily, Father, I am in great love, and I pray, my Lord, that the love which I have perceived this night may abide with me. And I will ask for that husband of whom I have learned today. And therefore, I will no more veil myself because the mirror or veil of shame is removed from me. And therefore, am I no more ashamed or abashed because the deed of shame and confusion is departed far from me. And that I am not confounded, it is because my astonishment has not continued with me. And that I am in cheerfulness and joy, it is because the day of my joy has not been troubled. And that I have set at naught this husband and this marriage that passes away from before my eyes, it is because I am joined in another marriage and that I have had no intercourse with a husband that is temporal, whereof the end is with lasciviousness and bitterness of soul, it is because I am yoked unto a true husband, Christ. There are many symbols of alchemy in what the bride says and in the scripture. But even to the uninitiated, we can see really clearly that she has experienced through this teaching joy, happiness, and is beginning to enter into the true marriage, the marriage of Christ. Many of us are seeking after temporary pleasure when we are lustful. We are seeking after sensations, physical sensations, physical experiences. That is temporal and passes away. That leads to lasciviousness and bitterness of soul. But chastity, chaste sexual union, is actually uniting the husband and wife with their inner divinity. The divinity of the wife, the divinity of the husband, become one. And that is why it is not a marriage with a spouse that is temporal, not just the union of the physical bodies, but really the union of the immortal souls. That is why. There, is two, there are two marriages, one marriage that is temporary, that passes away when the physical body dies, and another marriage, a divine marriage, through which the souls of husband and wife become one with the Spirit, one with Christ. Through this sexual act, they are reestablishing and rebuilding that bridge, that connection that, that guides us back to God. That is what gives us conscience 
That is what gives us insight and intuition, guidance, visions, dreams that are prophetic. All of that is established through working with our sexual potential because sex is what can reunite us with God just as it has separated us from our inner divinity through its abuse. Personally, I prefer the response of the groom even more because the groom, as we can see in his response, is someone like many of us who has been confused, who has been taught many ideas about sex that have led him into corruption, into impurity and suffering. And so we can hear in this response from the groom so much gratitude for how sex has guided him back to his true nature, his soul, reunion with divinity, and real love for Christ. <clears throat> in Acts of Thomas, the groom states, I give thee thanks, O Lord, that has been proclaimed by the stranger, Judas Thomas, and found in us, found in us, Christ is within us. O Lord, who has removed me far from corruption and sown life in me, who has rid me of this disease that is hard to be healed and cured and abides forever and has implanted sober health in me, chastity, who has shown me thyself and revealed unto me all my state wherein I am, who has redeemed me from falling and led me to that which is better and set me free from temporal things and made me worthy of those that are immortal and everlasting, that has made thyself lowly even down to me and my littleness, that thou may present me unto thy greatness and unite me unto thyself. Thou hast shown me how to seek myself and know who I was, and who and in what manner I now am, that I may again become that which I was, whom I knew not, but thyself did seek me out, of whom I was not aware, but thyself has taken me to thee, whom I have perceived, and now am not able to be unmindful of him, whose love burns within me. That is Christ. The disease that is hard to be healed and cured is lust, abuse of sex. We see that there's so much addiction Addiction, especially to pornography, that is extremely hard to be healed, that leads people to lunacy, to suffering, to pain, to, commit, to have affairs, to throw away their marriage. That disease can be healed by Christ. That's a tremendous source of hope. This teaching allows us to change, no matter how fallen we are, even if we are like the prostitute Mary Magdalene, we can be saved through chastity, through being purified and washed by the waters of our Divine Mother. It's an incredible, incredible power, sacrament that should be approached with tremendous respect and humility. And most of us approach sex with impurity, with selfishness, with disgusting desires. And that's why we hurt ourselves and we hurt other people. And that is why we see so much pain and suffering in our society, so much abuse of sex, abuse of 
of children, sexual assault and rape. Mankind has not been taught how to control his sexual force. And that is because sexuality is so powerful that only the properly prepared were ever taught this mystery. Now, frankly speaking, we are in a society in a time in which the abuse of sex has become so great that there is really no other option than to give this openly with the hope that maybe a few people will have enough willpower and enough sincerity and humility and genuine love of divinity to be able to accomplish this very difficult feat of chastity and sexual alchemy. It is not easy, it is very demanding, but the rewards are infinite. Eternal rewards, the ability to know your God again. We see here that the groom says that he knew not God, he knew not Christ, but Christ sought him out. He was not aware of Christ, but Christ took him back to divinity through sex, sacred sexuality. This is a, just an introduction today to a really tremendously deep mystery. And for those who really want to experience this, I encourage you to study a lot, to prepare yourself through meditation, meditating on lust every day, because with this sexual force, you will have the power of the Divine Mother working within you. And that power can destroy your lust, can destroy your greed, your anger, your envy, your hatred, your pride. That is the power of chastity, to regenerate the human being, to purify the human being, to restore the spiritual senses of the soul so that we can see and hear divinity again and always be mindful of divinity because divinity will burn like love within us. But if we abuse this teaching, if we abuse sex, those waters will drown us. If we pollute those waters with impurity and we try to work with this practice, it will create nothing but extreme suffering for us and the people around us. So prepare yourself properly. Because the groom that you are seeking to unite with is Christ. Christ is an infinite beauty, power, wisdom, and love. Christ is the force that animates and gives life to every atom in this universe. And that's why in Acts of Thomas, the apostle states that if mankind love God as much as they love one another, they would ask of him all things and receive them, and there would be nothing which would not obey them. If we love God, if we love Christ, that force of divinity, as much as we love our spouse, which hopefully we love our spouse because nowadays mankind doesn't seem to love each other as much as, as we have the potential to, if we loved God with the strongest intensity with which we've ever loved another person, then we would have the power to reunite with God through this sexual practice. 
Love is sexual. Eros, the god of love, representing, through the Greek mysteries, representing that force of Christ, is, is erotic love. Those two are intertwined. And that is why the teaching was given to us in the Bible by Paul of Tarsus relating to Christ and the church, the church being the ecclesia called out, the ones called forth to the assembly, the congregation, the church not as the physical building, but the church as the community of followers of Christ who become the physical vessels in which Christ acts and performs his miracles and manifests and gives his teachings to humanity through his apostles, through those who work with this science to purify themselves, to create a vessel that can, that can withstand that tremendous energy of Christ within it. That's why in this teaching from Ephesians, Paul of Tarsus directly relates the love of Christ, the union with Christ, to the relationship between husband and wife. It's one and the same mystery. If we engage in the sexual act and we renounce orgasm and we bring the presence of divinity and prayer and love into that act, that is the path to God. Paul wrote, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So we see there water, that symbol of sexuality. That he, Christ, might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So we see here that when a man and woman unite, they become one flesh. One flesh with each other, one flesh with divinity. If we are without blemish, if we have been washed by those waters, if we are holy. The church are the true apostles, the true followers of Christ. There are many people and many organizations that claim to be the true church of Christ. But we should examine ourselves. Are we a temple of God? Are we the physical body through which God can perform his will? Or are we filled with self-will, selfish desires, egotism? Are we motivated 
by the guidance we are receiving internally from divinity and acting in ways that help humanity, that heal humanity, that bring happiness to us and to others, and that help us to reunite with God? Are we giving that teaching of Christ? Or are we teaching spiritual things out of vanity, out of pride, out of ambition and seeking for power? Or are we just living a life totally divorced from God? Totally about me and myself and what I want. Maybe we say spiritual things when we're in public in the streets and then we go into the bedroom and whatever happens there, well, that's none of God's business, we think. We are fools if we think that God does not see, especially that which has happened when we are working with the force of creation, the power to give life in our own bodies. That is the moment when God is most present. And our Divine Mother weeps when we abuse and lose that force. If you work with this teaching, if you work with this practice, I promise you that you will begin awakening consciousness and you will see with tremendous shame the pain that we have brought to divinity and to other people through lust. So much of the suffering in this world is a direct result of uncontrolled lust, a lack of willpower, indulgence in lust. That's it. There are many other problems, but lust is the root because from lust we have lost that connection with divinity. We've lost our conscience, which guides us to perform what is right in God's eyes. You know, we, we truly learn from within, from our conscience, what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. We can read it in a book, and the commandments and the ethical precepts of all great religions are, are wonderful starting places and are necessary. We should be following those to purify our psychology. But the real teaching of right and wrong comes in each moment through that presence of Christ, of divinity within us. And we have to be awakened. We have to have spiritual sight and hearing to interpret those messages. It's one thing to receive the message, to, to have a powerful dream, for example. But if we are foolish, if our mind is out of balance, if we are totally controlled by selfish wishes, then we're going to interpret that dream according to our ego, according to our egotism. Oh, what do I want that dream to mean? And then that spiritual value, that gift that has been given to us is lost. So, we want to become the bride of Christ. We have to work very hard with ourselves. Sexual alchemy is important. Union with a spouse is important. But merely doing this practice with a spouse without any purity, without any love of divinity, without any love of our spouse is not going to be enough. We should be the, the, the bride of Christ because our physical body can be that receptive vehicle which can receive that projective force of Christ. The spirit can come down into the womb of our physical body and grow and be developed and channel light here into this physical world which needs the light of Christ and the teachings and the presence of Christ more than ever. Because so few people 
are capable of this. Each of us should uphold this duty, this obligation, to work on ourselves, to purify ourselves, to work with this practice with respect, with humility, to follow the will of our inner God. Humanity needs it now more than ever. And we see again Paul of Tarsus teaching us this same mystery that, our, that we, as the souls here, the souls of men, can become betrothed or married to Christ, that divine spirit. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. How does one become a virgin? Through virility, through virtue, through chastity. Humanity is fallen, but we can be redeemed, we can be purified, we can become, again, virginal, virginal bodies, virginal hearts, virginal minds, virginal souls, through chastity, through working with Christ, reading those scriptures, learning Kabbalah, learning alchemy, studying this, doing these practices, transmuting every day, whether single or in a marriage, finding a way to work with that energy and meditating on our defects to destroy them and performing good works and sacrifices that help humanity, even in small ways, helping the people around us, not for our benefit, not for our pride, not for our ambition, but out of love, because Christ is love. If you think of the moment in your life or the time when you felt the strongest love for another human being, that is Christ, a small taste of Christ. And as we work with chastity, we enliven that force. We bring that fire to life within our hearts, the fire of love. The sexual fire becomes pure, and it brings us power, but power of God, power that can only be granted if we are obeying the laws of God. So again, I recommend for those who are interested in learning more about this sacred mystery of chastity and who are interested in really applying it as a, as a way to regenerate them, their souls and return to God and receive that inner guidance within, to read the book, The Perfect Matrimony by Salma and Vior, to study alchemy, to study Kabbalah, we have a tremendous gift that this teaching is being given publicly for humanity. People for centuries would risk their lives, would dedicate years, decades, in preparation in the temples to receive this mystery. And it is being given openly to us as a gift because we so desperately need it and because without it, well, we already know the direction that our society seems to be going. We are not progressing, we are crumbling. So if that is the outcome we are already headed for, then we have nothing to lose by working with chastity, by applying it, by dedicating ourselves to it. 
if your sexual behavior has brought you nothing but pain in life, then sacrifice it. Give it up and try this practice. Work with chastity and see directly in your experience the tremendous results that you can receive through consistent, dedicated practice. You will be transformed. You can be purified. You can become converted like a child. There's tremendous power in sexual alchemy. So let's conclude with one final <clears throat> verse from Acts of Thomas. It is particularly fitting for you to live in holy chastity, for that is favored in God's eyes, and it leads to eternal life. It is the capital city of all good things in the eyes of God. Those who don't compete in Christ's stadium won't receive the prize of holy chastity. Holy chastity was revealed by God. It destroys sexual immorality, overturns the enemy, and pleases God, for it is an unconquered athlete, having honor from God and esteemed by many. It is the ambassador of peace, proclaiming peace. If anyone acquires it, that person remains carefree, pleasing the Lord, expecting the time of redemption. It does nothing improper, but affords life, rest, and joy to all who acquire it. If you have any questions, please write them in the chat box, and the other instructor will be uh, reading them to me. We have a question. How can a single person before marriage identify if a partner would commit to a sex life without orgasm? It's a wonderful question. I will let you know that I know many Gnostic practitioners in this teaching who work with chastity with a spouse who does not practice chastity. So it is possible that we can purify ourselves and unite with divinity by working in the sexual act if there is love in that marriage. Now, obviously, that has its challenges, right? So be mindful of it. But if you are performing the law, the will of God, if you are obeying and you are chaste, then you will be able to achieve union with your inner divinity, with Christ, through sexual alchemy. The forces are present there, the masculine, the feminine, and the Holy Spirit of sex is present there. God can come to you if you are prepared. Now, of course, your spouse might not like that. And that's your karma. That's your situation. That's what God has given you. And so you have to consider very carefully before marriage, is love really present there in that relationship or is it desire? Many people have been fooled by desire and ended up in very unhappy marriages. If your spouse is not open to this and you are already married, if there is love present in that marriage, you should not run away from that marriage. Love is the prerequisite for chastity. And those who choose to marry only another Gnostic or only another person who agrees with what I believe and do so only out of ambition, 
will get nowhere because there's no love in that marriage. Of course, if you meet another person that's open to this and, and wants to, uh, to practice with you, that is ideal, that is perfect, that is wonderful and beautiful. But only if love is present. So don't get married out of ambition. Meditate, pray, let God guide you to the spouse who you are destined for, the one who you can love, the one who will love you, the one who will bring you closer to Christ through that love, that force of Christ within your own hearts. What are the characteristics of chastity in women versus in men? To be more specific, how does chastity manifest itself in men and women? Well, the spiritual work for men and women is the same. So as a woman, I am required to fulfill all the same uh, requisites of purity, of chastity, abstaining from orgasm, transforming that energy in my body through pranayama or through sexual alchemy, meditation, working on my vices every day, it's really no different. One thing I will say for women who practice this, though, who, who transmute, whether married or whether single, we do not work with our sexual energy on our period. If you are on your menstrual cycle, abstain from working with sexual energy for that time. That, uh, that is a time of cleansing in which the body is, you know, washing out impurities and energetically as well, impurities are being removed from our body. It's a great benefit that women have, that nature purifies our bodies every month. But it means that we should not be uh, transmuting those energies because that's the time when impurities are, are being cleansed from us by nature. So what does chastity look like for a woman versus a man? It, it's the same. I mean, as a woman, you should not be orgasming. Many women say, well, I'm not losing any uh, seed when I orgasm. You do not see what you are losing spiritually and energetically in that orgasm. You are losing your, your vitality. You are losing that sexual energy, that connection with divinity, that power of creation in your own body. So men, women, it's, it's very similar. I guess I can't speak too much from the man's point of view, but at least as a woman, I can share that. What is the name of the bronze statue shown in this lecture with the quote of Saman Vior, the perfect matrimony? And is that position the only way to practice? Can you provide terms on what one should do or how to perform sexual magic in simple terms with detail on the procedure? Yeah. So that is not the only position in which one can practice sexual magic. Uh, generally speaking, the position is not really so important. So you can perform this uh, with the man on top of the woman or the woman on top of the man. What is important is that you are awake, you are meditative, you are prayerful, you feel love for your spouse, you feel love for divinity. You are not allowing animal passion to overcome your willpower. You are allowing the heat and the fire and the, the bliss of those pleasant sensations to awaken your consciousness, to nourish you. But you are not losing that force through orgasm. 
I'm not familiar with the name of that specific statue, but I have seen many like it. So that comes from Tantric Buddhism. Um, maybe the other instructor might know. I'm not too familiar with that specific statue, but there are many symbols throughout the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that describe and show this union. So there are many Buddhas or many spiritual masters, enlightened ones, who are showing uh, that particular act, such as Padmasambhava and uh, Yeshit Sogyal, or his consort, as an example. There are many examples of that practice within uh, that religion specifically. And in terms of being the only position or way to practice, you can study the chapter called the Pantatattva Ritual in Mystery of the Golden Flower by Samael and Vior in accordance with, uh, I believe, Hindu scripture and even uh, ancient, uh, you know, text itself. Yes, so definitely. In these texts, you will learn a variety of mantras as well. Mantra is an important part of sexual alchemy because it allows us to move that energy more effectively in our body. One of the main mantras that is taught in the perfect matrimony is I-A-O, which is pronounced as in Latin, E-A-O. So you can take a breath when you are united with your partner and vocalize the vowel sound E, and then again, Ah, and then again, oh. That is just one practice to give an example. But really, before you enter into this practice, you should study the book and you will learn a lot more mantras and much more about how to engage in that practice effectively. What's the next question? As a single person, I have verified that these teachings are true through my own experiences with pranayama, prayer, self-observation, meditation, etc. I am totally dedicated to this path. It has given my life the most beautiful meaning and purpose. I know these teachings are true in my heart and are the purpose of life. Ever since I started sincerely practicing these teachings and transmuting my sexual energies daily, about a year ago, I have been experiencing nocturnal pollutions about every two to three months. These are very painful experiences as I observe that my consciousness is weakened and I lose my psychic energies. My question is, what is the cause of these experiences? Is it karmic debt from past sexual misconduct? Are these tests in the internal worlds? Is it a lack of comprehension of lust? A combination of all these? Obviously, the goal is to eventually find a spouse and enter into the major mysteries of sexual alchemy. But in the meantime, is physical chastity possible like Shivananda and Yogananda? Wow, what an important question. Thank you for asking. For those who are not familiar <clears throat> with the term nocturnal pollutions, it refers to wet dreams, where uh, most notably for men, this is more obvious, where a man might wake up and realize that he has orgasmed in his sleep. Women as well may wake up and realize that their body is orgasming. So this can happen for men and women. I want to note that. There are a variety of reasons why this may happen, and we also have a remedy for this the remedy of the melon drink, which can help you. So if you are suffering from nocturnal pollutions, I encourage you to drink that remedy frequently until you see that the problem has been lessened. But we need a permanent solution for this problem, and the cause of the problem is lust. On one hand, I think that many single people 
are not transmuting enough. Pranayama must be performed every day, at minimum 10 to 15 minutes a day. But you can practice pranayama as long as you need. If you are a particularly fiery person, if that's your sexual temperament, you might need to perform a lot of pranayama every day. And also work with runes. Runes are another, uh, another sacred science that we teach in this tradition. And you can find those a whole course about the runes on glorian.org. There are also videos of these runes. That allows you to transform more energy. So one cause could be that you have too much sexual energy pent up, and since it's not being transformed, it is leading to that nocturnal pollution. That's a big problem. You do not want to lose that energy. The other is that we are tempted and tested in dreams. Often our own egos come out in dreams and they take the shapes of many uh, attractive people or situations that tempt us. And if we have not developed enough willpower through meditation, then when we are less awake, when we are more hypnotized in the dream state, we are more likely to fail and to engage in some kind of sexual activity in the dream state that causes our physical body to orgasm and to lose that energy. Do the best that you can. It takes time to train the body. It takes time also to train our psyche. But we should be vigilant. We should be meditating on lust every day to understand our lust. How does it manifest? What does it want? How does it control us? What provokes it? What tempts it? Some people just try to avoid temptation altogether. But when we see something in our life, we shouldn't go out of our way. We should not be looking at pornography or trying to find ways to, to test ourselves. That, that would be foolish. We are not at that level. But things happen in our life. We see people that we feel some attraction to. Don't avoid that. Go home and meditate. Meditate, meditate, meditate. What in you is impure? Sometimes we may even love a person, but that love is mixed with a lot of impurity. So even if you're married, you still need to be meditating on lust. Lust is always selfish, and divinity is selfless. The karmic debt from past sexual misconduct is the creation of lust in our own psychology. Uh, whenever we commit abuse of sex, we generate a, a psychological consequence, and that strengthens lust in our psyche, which then causes us to have less control over sexual force in both our physical life and in our dream life in the astral plane. So the karma is psychological, but we, we do have the power to overcome that. We do have the power to meditate. What did you dream about? Meditate on it. Understand it. Don't just feel, oh, I failed, I'm, I should be ashamed, and then not learn anything from that. It is a very humbling experience. It is a painful experience. And we should learn from that because that happens to us. It's an opportunity for us to understand something about ourselves that we do not understand. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. And the last part of that question, too. Obviously, the goal is to eventually find a spouse and enter into the major mysteries of sexual alchemy. But in the meantime, is physical chastity possible like Shivananda and Yogananda? Yes. Yeah, as a single person, we can achieve up to 50% of the elimination of the ego. Right now in this teaching, we know that most of us on this planet 
have about 97% ego. That means we are 97% selfish and blind to divinity. We have 3% consciousness free that can perceive things in a new way, that can perceive divinity, that can act spontaneously. And the other 97% of us is conditioned into habitual behaviors, conditioned psychology that wants to repeat habits again and again, repeat the same anger, repeat the same envy in a new situation, repeat the same lustful sensations. So as a single person, it is possible to become truly pure. Yogananda is a beautiful example. He made the mistake of believing that he could be married within to his divine mother without a spouse. And so he was only able to achieve half of that work. But what a tremendously beautiful soul, like an elemental, very pure, that brought wonderful teachings to humanity. So yes, that is possible for the single person. And we should not have such a strong desire for a spouse that we forget about how to live in happiness with what we have. God has put you in the situation you are in for a reason. It's possible that if you found a spouse, but you weren't properly prepared, that you could generate a lot of pain for you and for that person, that it could harm your future lifetimes, that it could create a karmic consequence that would be much more terrible. So there are worse things than being single, and we can use that single time to to master our sexuality, to become very comfortable with moving those forces in our body, with transforming it to awaken with purity, like a child, to become virginal. And then, when the time is right, God will bring your spouse to you, and you will know it because you will feel love, real love, not just sexual attraction, but real love. What's the next question? The next question, usually we find you shall not commit adultery in the Ten Commandments. Yet we don't see you shall not fornicate. Is it a part of the former commandment or is it a hidden commandment that was not taught before the age of Aquarius openly? Yeah, that's a good question. So thou shall not fornicate might not be one of the Ten Commandments, but we see it repeatedly in the Bible. So I might have misspoke a little bit there. Um, but fornication is um, frequently talked about in the Bible as a sin against God. And fornicate comes from the same root as furnace, that fire, that sexual fire. Is that fire in working in a positive way, or is that fire destroying us? Fornication is destructive. Chastity is regenerative, revitalizing. And also, too, we could add, whenever we expel the sexual energy, we are adulterating the power of the Divine Mother. In terms of the tradition itself of the commandments, uh, those have been interpreted and even modified in different ways uh, throughout religious tradition. But specifically, there is a distinction between you shall not fornicate or expel the sexual energy, but also you shall not commit adultery or to misuse that force in multiple relationships, as the lecturer had said. We have a question here. Could you explain the connection between sexuality and original sin? Can we say that sexual sin, lust, is the fundamental vice and the source of all other vices? Yes. Yes, we can. So that's 
that's uh, the original sin because lust, the orgasm, is what initially kicked us out of Eden, brought us in separation from divinity. When we feed lust, when we orgasm, we become hypnotized, we become confused. A little piece of us or a big piece of us starts to become deluded. And through that delusion, humanity can wander further and further away from God. The more that that action is repeated, the more delusion humanity enters into. And that delusion can include all other kinds of crimes, anger, murder, hatred, theft, greed, pride. So it is from lust over many centuries, over many lifetimes, that we have been committing lustful acts that all these other crimes have been able to occur. Now, these vices can occur separate from lust as well. I mean, there are, uh, even, even the gods are said to have, have, to have spiritual pride, which is a vice, but those gods know how to work with sex in the appropriate way, through sexual chastity, using sex with purity. So, while it is the root of all sins, those sins, you know, can be manifold. We usually say there are seven, seven deadly sins. But even within those seven, there are so many unique manifestations of those seven deadly sins. And lust is like that. Sometimes lust can be proud. Sometimes lust can be angry. Sometimes lust can be greedy. So they are all interrelated. If you really want to understand the fall of humanity, the sexual fall of humanity, then I would encourage you to read the book, The Elimination of Satan's Tale, which tells the, the history behind why humanity originally fell uh, out of the Garden of Eden. A really interesting story. Uh, by, that book is by Samuel Viewer as well. Here's a question. Taoists and other traditions distinguish between orgasm and ejaculation for men. Is this distinction made in Gnosticism? Is the key for men to restrict ejaculation, i.e., what many people today are calling semen retention? Yeah, that's a great question and one that comes up often when we give this teaching. Orgasm and the loss of semen are both uh, considered not permitted in the sacred sexual act. So, no, uh, you cannot just retain the semen but indulge in the energetic orgasm. As I mentioned earlier, for for men or for women, the, the short circuit of the orgasm is destructive for the physical body and for the vital body, which is the energetic body that animates us, that gives us the power to move around, that uh, you know enlivens our heart and allows it to keep beating. That vital body gets destroyed, and that's why illnesses can develop. It's harmful. But spiritually speaking, as I just mentioned in the previous answer, when we indulge in that orgasm, in that sensation, our psychology changes. Our consciousness becomes conditioned, becomes addicted, becomes um, hypnotized by that sensation and wants more and more and more. So even if you are only uh, performing the orgasm now and then, or you are only performing the orgasm to have a child, it is harmful for this practice. You should renounce orgasm 100% if you are going to work in chastity and perform the perfect matrimony through sexual alchemy.
That's what we teach because that law of nature indicates that through that door, we can leave heaven. We can go into hell, into the lower states of consciousness. And that door is directly related with sex, the orgasm. The orgasm opens the door to the lower states of consciousness, allows devilish qualities, evil energies to enter into us psychologically and spiritually. And when we go up through the door, when we transmute that energy from the sexual organs up the spine into the brain to enliven the pineal gland, the seat of the soul, where our inner divinity can give us guidance, we are going back up to divinity. Orgasm will bring us down. The law dictates that chastity is a prerequisite to go up into the heavenly realms. We have a question. Is it possible to overdo pranayama if single? Sometimes if I do hamsa too much, it seems to build up too much fire. Or is it because I'm not doing the pranayama correctly? It doesn't produce much fire with runic vowels, etc. You know, it's not possible to harm yourself by doing pranayama too much. So you can do three hours of it a day. You can do five hours of it a day. It won't hurt you. If you say that you are feeling a lot of fire as a result, it is because that sexual fire, which was latent, has become active, and you need to apply that fire in your meditation. When we feel sexual fire, we are very awake. Our consciousness becomes vigilant. Now, when we are conditioned by lust, yes, that lust drives us to become uh, vigilant in seeking sexual sensations. But when we meditate, on that lust and seek to understand it as we are enlivened by that same fire, that fire gives us the ability to be very awake and very aware and to go very deep in comprehension of that ego, of lust. And the fire also transmuted gives your divine mother the power, her, that fire is her power, to destroy those egos of lust. So if you're feeling overly stimulated by the practice, Yes, you can do some other practices instead to balance it out, but use that fire to meditate on what is coming up for you psychologically. And, you know, if you, if you become overwhelmed in your meditation, you are overly, you know, the, the impression is too powerful and you can't transform it and you're being tempted too much, take a break, go outside, go for a walk, read a scripture, do something to calm yourself down, and then meditate again when you're feeling calmer. We have a couple questions here. You have mentioned ambition and spouse selection as an impediment in progressing in the path. You have also said that we should not submit to animal passion in the act. If one is in a loving marriage, but the couple is disinterested in alchemy one evening, is it best to practice pranayama? Oh, yes. So I think if I understand the question correctly, uh, you're asking whether we have to practice this sexual act every night. So, no. Uh, the most that the sexual alch alchemy should be practiced is once per day. And again, women should not be performing this act on their menstrual cycle. So there is a, a sort of magnetic pause there during that time. But you do not need to practice it every day. It depends on the temperament of the couple. If the couple is a uh, cooler temperament around sexuality, then they might practice this uh, once a month, once a week. That's okay. 
very fiery couples will probably practice once per day. Um, it, if you're not feeling interested in sex, then it's okay to practice pranayama. And if you feel particularly lustful one day and you're afraid that you're going to enter into that sexual act and potentially lose your energy, then yes, I would encourage you to practice some pranayama first, to meditate first. Maybe wait until you're not feeling that lustful anymore to enter into that act because it's very difficult in the beginning. So we do. We, we have an animal mind that seeks sensation, that wants more and more and more, that desire. And that's difficult to overcome. So in the beginning, we usually encourage couples to only connect very briefly or maybe just to touch, to just, you know, hold each other, to kiss, but not to physically connect right away, just to get used to conquering that sensation and then to be connected just for a few minutes and to take a break. It depends on your temperament. It depends on also on how much discipline you have with your mind and your pranayama before marriage. If you've practiced with pranayama for many years, you might be able to adapt to the sexual alchemy practice more quickly, but it really varies by individual. Each of us have our own karma, which has shaped our psychology. So some of us are more strongly addicted to uh, lust than others, but all of us have lust and all of us need to meditate on it. If the couple is ambitious, and decides to engage in the Arcadum AZF, do those creative energies give life to ambition and potentially related desire? So just like lust, we shouldn't bring ambition into the act. In the act, we should really meditate on our love for our spouse. We should not just be saying, okay, let's practice today because I want to uh, have more spiritual experiences and experience divinity, and that's the, the motivation for our practice. We should practice because we love God and we love our spouse. And so if you are going into that act with ambition, you're not going to get very far and you're actually going to channel that energy into your ambition so that your desire for more and more and more spiritual sensations will become stronger. So meditate before, before alchemy. Meditate on your ambition or your lust or whatever defect it is that you see coming up in that act to corrupt it, to separate you from divinity and then pray before that act. Divine Mother, use this sexual energy, use your sacred power to eliminate this ego of ambition, this ego of lust, or whatever it may be for you. That will really help your practice. Is it only suitable to engage in sex when both parties are in a state of innocent love for another? Well, as I mentioned before, we might have a partner a spouse who is not interested in chastity and who is engaging in orgasm. That's a painful situation, but it happens. And we shouldn't just leave that person uh, because of that. However, we've, we're going to have to have those hard conversations and discuss and find a way in which out of love, that person can respect your choice to be chaste. That's really specific to the case of the couple. Uh, so, uh, if, if you have a spouse that is practicing chastity with you and feels particularly lustful one day and says, you know, I don't want to engage, um, respect them, have love for them, support them. Also, if you and your spouse find that lust is coming up a lot for you in sex, meditate. 
in the beginning, there's going to be a lot of lust there. And so as much as we try to start with an, with an innocent mind, with purity and with love, there will be lust there. And so in that case, again, we should meditate after sex and <laughs> meditate on what we saw. In the beginning, it's very difficult. That fire is big. It's out of control. It takes time and willpower to learn. So maybe engaging for a few moments until you realize that you are starting to get distracted, you're starting to get hypnotized by the sensations and you are losing your wakefulness, your vigilance, your awareness of God. But, you know, love is a very beautiful sensation that comes out in sex. And so it's not... I don't want to encourage people to be afraid that, you know, um, so afraid that they're not able to do this practice. Let your heart guide you and let divinity guide you. There, there will be lust present in the beginning, and that's why we need this practice to purify ourselves. Eventually, if we are successful, we can become like saints, you know, free from that torment of lust. We can become masters of our sexuality. And then we command the sexual force to work when we want it to work. Rather than that sexual force commanding us to be slaves, to be servants of its sensations. But it takes time. We have a question. I'm curious what you mean by orgasm exactly. My experience of raising the sexual energy up the spine and into the brain centers is actually highly orgasmic. The body pulsates in just the way it does during orgasm and a feeling of joy is generated. The same goes for all chakras and dantians. Do you mean that this whole body energetic experience should actually be avoided in Gnosticism? Well, it's a good question. I mean, there are sensations in alchemy. It's, there is sexual pleasure. There is bliss, the bliss of love, the bliss of alchemy. So you really have to examine for yourself. But yeah, if there is an orgasm, in your sexual organs and you feel that, then that's not sexual alchemy. So in black magic, they teach you how to perform the sexual act with orgasm and channel that energy in the way that has just been described in the question in order to awaken consciousness. But what happens is because of the orgasm and those negative demonic influences that come in, Yes, you might experience bliss, but you're also awakening your consciousness and developing power within the ego, which is separate from God. So you really have to meditate yourself on, on you know, what is happening there. Because there is bliss with, um, you know, spiritual bliss and energy moving in the body and alchemy, but there is not the orgasm of the sexual organs. Alchemy, white alchemy, white tantra, that we teach here in this school does not permit orgasm because that orgasm short circuits the body, loses the energy. And so while the sensations of bliss that you might feel in an orgasm, even, even outside of any spiritual context, of course, orgasm is blissful, right? And people feel that sensation of bliss. And that is actually not positive because it is the bliss of, of that energy but then that energy is lost and expelled from the body. So we want to keep that bliss calm, consistent throughout our practice. We have a question. Is it true that cardiovascular exercise, such as running while breathing in through the nostrils and out through the mouth, 
help to transmute the sexual energy? Yes, that, that you know, exercise, um, some sports, some physical practices, uh, you know, like maybe some Aikido or, or martial arts that aren't too violent, uh, that can be one form of transmutation of sexual energy. However, I really caution you not to use that as your only form because it's without pranayama, you're not go- your body isn't naturally going to move those energies back up the spine. Pranayama done every day is cleaning out the, the two cords which go around the spine, the two can- channels of Ida and Pingala, and allowing that energy to, to become accustomed to moving up the spine into the brain into the heart. But if you are not doing that every day, those, uh, those channels are very dirty and they are blocked. And so if you're just, you know, playing soccer with your friends, but you're not, not performing the pranayama, then no, you're probably not transmuting very much energy. Um, so it, it can be good to walk and to breathe, but breathe with that transmutation, with that visualization of the energy coming up through your spine. You can use the hamsa pranayama if you're familiar with it um, throughout the day. I've used it at work, you know, silently, just to keep myself awake and vigilant if I notice that I'm starting to get, um, you know, unaware of what's happening spiritually, lose my self-observation. So really work with some form of pranayama every day if, if you're a single person. And if you're married, you can also work with pranayama. It's it's um, an option for married people, so you don't have to feel that pressure to work in sexual alchemy every day. Um, but married people are, generally speaking, moving more energy in that sexual connection, and so they may not need pranayama on the days that they're not united. It, it really depends on the couple. So you have to investigate, meditate, pray, and watch the answers that you receive in your dreams from divinity. And divinity will tell you if you are uh, going going off the going off the correct path there, and guide you on how to get back. We have a question. Isn't chastity a cruel repression of the self, sometimes like a punishment or sadistic behavior, that when it is released in different ways creates suffering everywhere? Hmm. Well, I wonder if you've ever really practiced chastity, because if you are referring to celibacy, celibacy, as I mentioned earlier in the lecture, does produce suffering if that energy is not worked with through prayer, through transmutation. Um, Celibacy creates imbalances in the psychology in the same way that lust and orgasm create imbalances in the psychology. Uh, In celibacy, that energy sits there like a like a pool of water that becomes stagnant and that energy becomes putrid and poisons the mind and that creates suffering. But chastity is not celibacy. Chastity is how to work with sex in a positive way. And so no, it is not a repression of oneself. It is uh, connecting directly with one's sexuality in a very powerful way, in a very conscious way and working with that energy in the body. And the result of chastity, real chastity, if you are practicing this without orgasm consistently, then you will have positive benefits. You will feel more love for your neighbor. 
you will feel more subtle emotions. You will feel more peace and happiness. You will feel more awake. You will have more uh, spiritual senses developed, spiritual visions, more, more powerful dreams. So, no, I, I would disagree with, uh, with that idea. We have a question. I'm getting more confused about orgasm and ejaculation. I always felt or experienced that they are one and the same or happen at the same time in my past. How are they different? Yeah, um, I know that that was a question someone mentioned about Taoism. So I'm not too familiar with um, semen retention, although I have heard of it. It's the practice by which some uh, retain the semen instead of ejaculating the semen, but still experience the orgasm and allow those sensations to move you know, through the body. So with, uh, with the orgasm, without ejaculation, you're not losing the physical substance of the semen, but you are losing the energetic spiritual substance. Uh, because as that short circuit occurs in the orgasm, uh, that energy moves quickly through the body and then is lost. So that those moments of bliss, which may be prolonged and may last for a certain time, ultimately uh, leave and are depleted. It's the feeling of bliss as the sexual energy is being depleted, which is very different from the feeling of bliss, bliss that we have when the sexual energy is being activated and conserved and moved through the body. Both might be considered blissful, but they have very different flavor. And when you work with those practices, uh, you, will, uh, you will understand the difference there. So I know that it's quite popular and a lot of people like that. They can still have the orgasm and feel like they're getting the benefits of not ejaculating, but it is black magic. Semen retention is black magic. And if you read the book, Perfect Matrimony, you will understand why we consider it black magic in this tradition, because it breaks the law that God has put in nature. And it, it hypnotizes the psyche your psychology becomes imbalanced and addicted to sensations. And while you may feel spiritual doing it, you are actually strengthening ego and you are giving that energy into egoic states, desire, lust, pride. So you might not experience the, best, the benefits of chastity that I've described if you are doing that practice. What's the next question? If you are doing pranayama with alternate nostril breathing, what is the best mantra to use? Is it acceptable to use an abbreviated Egyptian mantra, Ton Saham? We generally recommend that when you choose one of the practices, you can use the mantras specifically denoted in that practice. So if you've read the practice in the book about the Egyptian pranayama, you should use the mantras in the way that they are taught in the book. There is a pranayama of alternate nostril breathing that does not require any mantra. So that is just focusing, bringing your awareness and breathing in through one nostril as you visualize the energy moving up one side of the spine, you know, one of those, one of those cords, and then through the other one, um, visualizing that energy moving up the other column of the spine. So if you are too um, burdened by the mantras, then begin with the alternate nostril breathing that doesn't require a mantra.
To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.